0: The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and columnist for the New Daily.
0: And I'm Stephen Mayne, contributor at Eureka, founder of Crikey, shareholder, advocate and city of Manningham, councillor.
1: And we are... The Money Money Cafe. Cafe. Um, Big day, Alan. Big day, Stephen. We'll get on to um, Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley in a moment, but let's talk about Paul Keating.
0: Paul Keating, your mate, Paul Keating. He's gone a bit mad. I think think he should be cancelled, frankly. I, I can't believe the press club gave him a platform... To launch all these vicious attacks on journalists, and then he's even launching vicious attacks on his own on his own party. I mean, he should be sacked as a party member, in my view. Uh,
1: well, um, I, I don't agree. I think uh, they knew exactly what they were getting, and they knew what his point of view was, and so they presumably got him on to say that at the National Press Club. And uh, he said he duly said that. Um, he's been writing stuff in the pearls and pearls and irritation. Uh, website uh, it's a attacking. Ma- it's
0: getting a bit marginal, though, isn't it, to be on pearls no. and irritating. He'll, be fi- he'll finish up as an angry man on Twitter, I think, because he won't be getting a run anywhere.
1: No, that's rubbish. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that's true. You At don't all. think
0: that 26 years after leaving Parliament, he, you know, he's yesterday's man and his views are getting a bit vicious and outdated? I mean, how can you say there's, there's no problems with China? I don't get that. You're not reading the presses. you he not watched Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, the South China he Seas?
1: Well, he doesn't think China's going to attack Australia, and I think that's correct. But the, yeah. um, uh, He he thinks that even if they invade Taiwan, that's uh, all right. no one's going to defend Taiwan. Just
0: a little island of 25 million like us. That's all right. Let them
1: take it. Yeah, but look, uh, sure, they'll, uh, um, th- there'll be sanctions. They'll be, you know, everyone will be outraged, as, as everyone's outraged at Russia for... Invading Ukraine and probably yeah. give Taiwan weapons and you know all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But but is is there going to be a war between America and China that we get involved in? Well, no, we, of we, course. We've followed the Americans in every
0: other war. So if the Americans defend Taiwan, I think we're involved. So uh, so I rang
1: Paul your after mate, his, yes <laughs> after his after um. After his appearance on National Press Club, and you know, and as always with Paul, you know, it's a long conversation. Um, but during the course of it, he told me about these things that China has just launched, called uh, uncrewed submarines or heavily heavily armed uncrewed submarines, which are drones basically, submarine drones that are large, extra. They're called extra large, uh, heavily armed. And uh, Paul says the, the fu- this is the future of warfare, at least certainly maritime warfare, is uncrewed submarines because you don't have to worry about air in them. You don't have to worry about space space and um, rooms for them to sleep in and corridors. You don't have to worry about crew safety. Um, and, uh, you know, they've, they've already got five designs on the go. Um, and Paul says, well, imagine what they're going to be like in five years, these things. So... You know, there's no thought of us. I mean, he reckons that the, the submarines that we're buying are going to be redundant by the time we buy yeah, them.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so uh, I reckon that's not a bad argument. I'm, you know, obviously I'm not an expert on military hardware, but and I and I after talking to Paul, I Googled them, and sure enough, there they are, pictures of the things, everyone's writing about them in the naval news. There's lots of stuff about these uncrewed drone submarines. Yeah. And what are we doing about that? Nothing. Well,
0: we're just, you know, getting some
1: strategic defence. We're just, we're just we're, we're spending... Powering up with the, we're, we're powering sp- up with the Americans.
0: Which we're just, spending our entire budget on bloody... Uh, it's 0.15% of GDP. It's just a big number over 50 years. But, I mean, Keating was a good treasurer. He never served as, as defence minister. He was never the foreign minister. I don't know why he's suddenly this global expert on, on Chinese military. I mean, he's just... I don't get it. Stick with compulsory super, Paul. I say just leave defence to the experts. Anyway, we should talk about Credit Suisse. I reckon they're a cracking buy for Macquarie at the moment. Ten billion, you can own Credit Swiss.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now it's fascinating what happened last night. So what uh, so what happened is the um, the Saudi National Bank, which owns just under ten percent of Credit Suisse, the chairman of it did an interview with Bloomberg, uh, and the journalist asked him said to him, "Would you uh, would Saudi National Bank support another share issue by?" Uh, credit Swiss, and the bloke says, "Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, they well, have all put the things four billion
0: say, in for ten percent. So,
1: I no, agree. But, but everything the bloke could say, right? You know, you could say, oh, look, we support the board. We think they're doing a, you know, they're doing the best they can.' Blah blah blah. You, you know, do anything. You do, you say anything, but absolutely not. Yeah, now I I, mean, look, I agree. because he's
0: because the line he sort of used was that the regulators won't let us go above ten percent." But that's bollocks, because if they have a capital raising, you would cornerstone it and keep your 10%. So he he should have said, if they need more capital, we are here as a supportive 10% shareholder. But he didn't didn't say that, and he basically caused effectively a run on the stock. Exactly. A mass run on the stock, everyone's selling on their phones again. And, um, yeah. and there's contagion all over the place. And, and now you're going to get uh, global official interest rates are probably not going to get increased well, much more because this credit crisis is effectively going to contain inflation on its own.
1: Exactly. That's right. And Credit Suisse is a is, is a different kettle of fish to Silicon Valley Bank, is it not? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Do, do you know the the... Size difference between. Oh them? look, it's, look,
0: Credit Suisse is now m- mainly a wealth manager, so they're not so much in that global investment banking advisory space like, say, Goldman Sachs. They used to be one of the global sort of investment banks. They're now they've pivoted to investment management. That's getting smashed by ETFs and the index funds and the likes. Plus, they've had a series of of management stuff ups, and and you know, Green Seal, Lex Greenshill took them out for a few hundred million. When that collapsed, so look.
1: So a good buy for Macquarie
0: Bank. Well, a great buy for Macquarie Bank. I mean, Macquarie's capitalised at, at 68 billion, even after this morning's 3% fall, and um, and they they are masters of buying diamonds in the rubble. Remember, they bought BT Australia uh, for you know basically 100 million in 1999, one of the great acquisitions. So I think that uh, that Macquarie should snap up Credit Suisse, but the, the the Swiss government will will save them if they have to because they're a famous Swiss bank, second, second only to UBS, which is worth, you know, $100, 100 billion Australian, whereas Credit Suisse is down to $10 billion. But it's an amazing of loss of confidence in, um, in global small banks, isn't
1: it? Yeah, before we get on to interest rates, speaking of Macquarie, you've, you've just read their, the new book on Macquarie, right, called The Millionaire's Factory, where the authors have pinched the, the uh, phrase for them that you coined – Well, I am outraged.
0: I gave them their nickname in in April 1997 in The Herald Sun. And uh, I remember Alan Moss complaining to us, saying, well, you're the only people, the business section of The Herald Sun, that call us The Millionaire's Factory. No one else calls us that. Why do you keep doing it? (laughs) Anyway, so we did it. And um, now there's a book called The Millionaire's Factory. And look, it's a great read because basically The Millionaire's Factory have... You know, they've never they really speak publicly. Like they just they're just faceless bankers. For years, the annual report never even had a picture of a banker. I mean, a friend of mine, Lisa Jamison, has been their PR person for 20 years. She's never been quoted in the press. They don't even allow a spokesman from Macquarie said to appear anywhere. All of a sudden, a hundred bankers have gone on the record in this book. So Are they on just, the record in the book? All, are there's a hundred bankers who've been interviewed on the record. They're all quoted. You've got
1: tones. So it must be a, a sort of a semi-official... It
0: is. It's uh, authorised. It's basically. authorised. Well, it's not authorised, but it's, they've, they've cooperated.
1: They've cooperated.
0: And therefore, they've got a fairly positive perspective. But there's a lot of great revelation. Like, I didn't realise that uh, um, Peter Warren, who was their chairman until last year, he was retrenched. He was made redundant by Macquarie when they bought BT in 1999. Yeah. And, you know, only two of the 11 executive committee members got brought across. He wasn't one of them. He got paid out. And then he came back as the chairman. I mean, there's no other company whose chairman has been made redundant by their own company. At some what,
1: a, point. what a great tale of redemption and
0: recovery, that is. They, um, yeah. they, they're the masters of buying diamonds in the rubble, as this book shows, and also first move advantage on global infrastructure. That was the actual real genius of Macquarie. Plus the, the model of hiring the best and brightest from Harvard and then locking them up on seven-year um, with withheld bonuses. So you can't, it's too expensive to leave, and you hire the, the best and brightest. That was the model, and then really nimble uh, with good risk management. So they went into the 87 crash, strong, went through the GFC, strong, and they're strong today in this current crisis. So I reckon they will snap up some distressed rivals, such as a Credit Suisse in this environment. But it's a great read. We, just, we now need a book on CSL. That's the, that's the last big one outstanding is the book on how CSL took over the world. Someone's got <sighs> to write a it. It's job for you, mate. No, I can't do a book. I can't keep my mind attention beyond 10 seconds on Twitter. So <laughs> I've had two failed m- memoir contracts. Well, you know, give it I've a, been given money a, to do a memoir. I've never been able to deliver a, even a chapter.
1: We'll give CSL a Twitter thread then and we can turn it, make it so long that yeah. it turns into a book. <laughs> But um, just you—you you, you mentioned before. You skipped over before something we ought to dwell on, which is the fact that interest rates have probably stopped going up now because financial conditions have tightened as a result of this banking, in quotes, crisis. Yeah, I mean, I'm—I'm I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it a full-blown crisis at this point. Wow. Well, um, I mean, but it's—but it's kind of getting there. It—it is becoming contagion, and and global interest rates
0: have humbled in terms of what the expectations are. So the two-year treasuries have gone from 5.06 a week ago to 3.8. So that's a 126 basis points drop. So this is yeah. the great irony of the fact that the Silicon Bank collapsed. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed because they were forced to sell $22 billion worth of US treasuries at a book loss of $1.8 billion US dollars. If they'd been able to hang on for a week, they wouldn't have suffered a book loss because the price of bonds has suddenly soared because of the crisis of their own collapse. Yes. So um, I just find that amazing. And then the Federal Reserve, of course, comes out and, and creates the window where everyone can load up where treasuries and get cash back by the government. So why
1: didn't
0: they, why didn't they save Silicon Bank by offering that instead of wiping out the shareholders? Disgraceful treatment of the shareholders, in my view, of Silicon Bank.
1: Well, that's what happens to shareholders. But
0: this thing was it was it was capitalized at 16 billion US dollars when the stock last traded at $267.39 and it peaked at 760. So the market cap in 2021 was 45 billion US dollars and then a bunch of venture capitalists can do a Twitter run can take out 40 billion in a week. And no government, you know, stands stands. And they did nothing wrong. The Silicon Valley Bank, except for being too concentrated in one sector and not not, the other not thing,
1: locking uh, up their depositors the, for a bit. The longer. other thing worth mentioning about Silicon Valley Bank is the fact that the the authorities in America have just come out and said everyone's guaranteed now. Depositors are guaranteed, uh, and they're not worried about moral hazard at all. You know, well, the, it's only for the depositors. I mean, those bondholders and the shareholders are getting
0: wiped out, getting appallingly treated, while the depositors are getting Rolls Royce protection. That's right. As a shareholder advocate, I'm outraged at the preferential treatment of depositors in this moral hazard debate. (laughs) I mean, the AGM was coming up on April 27. I was looking forward to the Silicon Valley uh, Bank 3pm virtual AGM on April 27. Their 133-page notice of meeting was full of, aren't we fantastic, everything's great. They, their net audited assets were 16 billion they were claiming KPMG signed off December 31 these guys are worth 16 billion US dollars and the governance was good 11 independent directors and one CEO independent chair KPMG signing off so I think they're in terms of a of a bad boy they're basically pretty unfairly treated I think I mean fancy going broke because you invested in US treasuries and then a bunch of of uh, flighty yeah. venture capitalists that point, sold Steven. you
1: short. That, that, no, that is a very good point, actually.
0: I mean, gee whiz, just a classic case of borrow short and then long, and then someone cries fire on, fire in a theater on Twitter, and it's game over for the shareholders and the bondholders. It's disgraceful. Yeah, we've, got,
1: we've got a bunch of questions to answer, so we better get into them. And no one's asking about Silicon Valley Bank. That's well,
0: because the lock The lock off time was before this all happened. But anyway, let's uh,
1: get the questions. Fiona says, can you explain to me how people can receive a full Centrelink pension living at a house worth $10 million or more? And that's very simple, Fiona, it's because that's what the law is. Um, we should have a
0: Kiwi-style situation where once your house is worth above a certain amount, um, if you're going to claim the pension, it will be paid back out of the estate after you pass. I personally think that $3 million is the figure of the day. That We should introduce a $3 million cap once your house is worth more than $3 million you can't keep getting the age pension but this idea that it's a good strategy to have a 10 million dollar house and claim the age pension is, is absolutely wrong because think about it the most you can get as a couple living in a 10 million dollar house with the age pension is 40 grand a year yet if you had 10 million you put it in the bank at 4% you're making 400 grand a year so it's a total misallocation of capital to leave 10 million tied up in your house earning nothing just so you can get a forty thousand dollars government pension, you should be living in a one million dollar apartment, and then put that nine million to work building up value for well, your speaking
1: family. Of, speaking of someone who lives in a large house after the kids have all gone, and I just cannot face moving. I mean, well, your like, house house is not worth ten million, but um, you know, really, the idea of the idea of moving. Oh God, I can't face yeah, it. Yeah. Not that I'm going to be on the pension, but. But still, I mean, I I do feel some sympathy for people who are stuck in a a house in Turak. I
0: mean, we are are in the city of Burundara here. You know, Monique Ryan, Kuyong Territory, you live around here. 27% of the over 65s in Burundara live alone, and the majority of them are women. So it is too expensive to move house, stamp duty, things like that, and it's an inefficient use of the housing stock, particularly in this time of unaffordable housing to have so much so many people living alone in big houses so um something which encouraged people to downsize without losing out financially i think would be good good policy overall roberto Roberto. okay i am refinancing my home loan to fund a renovation the banks advise that we will have extra lending ability if we pay off our hex debt I'm concerned if we pay off the HEX debt that the government will waive HEX debts or change the indexation structure to be at less cost. Do you think there's a chance they will do this or should I just pay it down?" Well, look, they're not gonna waive $68.7 billion of HELP debt, as it's now called, owed by 2.9 million Australians, unless we get our first ever Greens government. But I can't see that happening. So I would suggest, given that it's indexed at inflation, and so it's probably going to go up by five, six, seven percent on July one. But it probably does make sense to pay down your HECS debt if you can afford to do it.
1: Yeah, well, you've got to pay down you've got to pay off your most expensive debt first. Yeah, correct. That's it. Yeah, correct.
0: So. And, uh, and it is going to be... The indexation is going to be the biggest it's ever been this year. So it is becoming a bit of an issue. But, but there's not going to be a policy change. Like, I mean, you do get interesting policy changes. We just had a library board meeting yesterday at the council and we've just voted to abolish late fees. And we were bringing in 45 grand a year in late fees. Everyone else has got rid of it. And um, we're not going to chase those people who've got it outstanding. So we are changing the rules and we're forgiving all those people like a hex debt who hadn't paid their late fees. But that's not going to happen with $68 billion worth of (laughs) hex debts, I don't think.
1: Mitch says, when when would you use a margin loan or equity in your house to purchase shares? Example, if I currently have a low mortgage with money on my offset account and would like to purchase $100,000 worth of index fund ETFs, am I best off using cash to purchase or a margin loan? Um, I would say share prices need to be a lot lower than this, Mitch. You need you you need to be pretty sure that the, you're buying at the bottom. Yeah, you want to, to be there for,
0: for March 2009 lows, not not now. And I would generally diversify your funding sources. So I would never never. I made the biggest mistake I ever made was paying off our home loan because then I can't get another home loan. And um, so I haven't had funding sources to, to wade into the market when it's good value. So I've still got the the margin line. So I would have both, but because your home loan will normally be cheaper than your margin loan, um, but always leave masses of headroom across both facilities because particularly with your margin loan, you can be sold up, you can be margin called, whereas the bank won't sell you up based on a change in the valuation of your house because it's a pretty stable yeah. 30-year loan.
1: But you certainly shouldn't, however you do it, you shouldn't buy, buy borrow to buy shares. Uh, unless, as you say, it's you know, March two thousand and nine, or, or yeah. you know f- uh, March or April twenty ten.
0: Yeah. Or, or if, you, if your debt asset position is fine, like if you've got you know a three million dollar house with a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage, then half a million dollar margin loan on a million dollar share portfolio is is nothing to worry about because you know it's like saying BHP's got a problem because they've got ten billion of debt. I mean, it's all relative to your assets. You can have a margin loan as long as it's uh, your overall balance sheet is uh, lowly geared. Yeah. Oscar, how would local councils in Australia respond if they had to adopt a policy like California's recent changes to housing quotas? Do you think this makes sense in Australia? It roughly outlined the Californians require the local government to provide enough land for much needed housing, particularly projects for low and moderate income families and streamline permits for projects. Otherwise they face m- consequences like loss of state funds, fines, loss of control over planning decisions. Well, this is true that California is running the most aggressive councils you must deliver masses of, of affordable housing, particularly like little detached homes so families, multi-generations of families can stay together. In other words, very easy to get a permit to build a granny flat type sort of model which is affordable. So, I like that as a policy. Melbourne has got the lowest amount of affordable housing of any city in Australia. Um, Big Dan has got his big housing build. He's spending five billion building 12,000 new homes. Councils, we're all trying, but we really can't move the dial. And we're conflicted in a way because we're the planning authority. So once you start doing favors for particular developers, and there's always a massive NIMBY reaction whenever you try and do affordable housing project. That's the other awkward thing for local politicians. So in Victoria and most what states, but what are you saying? It's you
1: need you need the state government or the federal state government, government to, come in, and to t- come in and go bang and tell you what to do. Yeah, because at the end
0: of the day, we people say we've got three levels of government in Australia. We don't. We have two levels of government because councils are entirely a creation of state governments. There is only two levels of government in Canberra because they Canberra they don't have councils, whereas every other state. The state has just chosen to create little local management authorities to run their little council areas, but they're all 100% controlled by states and we're not even mentioned in the constitution, just like the Aboriginal Australians are not mentioned in the constitution. Albo wanted to put both of us in the constitution a few years ago, but now he's just focusing on the voice.
1: Um, Graham says, your weekend briefing explained that the interest rate increase, interest increase impact is slower hitting the economy in the USA when compared to Australia, because almost all house loans in the U.S. are fixed, so so not susceptible to repayment increases. My question is, how does the net interest margin process work in America, when interest costs, as in now, are rising, but bank interest income from mortgage holders is fixed? Well, that's right. Um, so the they get their uh, they get their I- interest margin from businesses and from new mortgages and from from other things, other than their fixed the, the households, mm,
0: but That's it's right. also a lot of hedging um, to match the liabilities. And so you'll you'll issue a thirty year bond at a fixed rate, and then you'll issue a truckload of fixed rate mortgages that line up with that bond. So, yeah. so the American banks just have to, unlike poor old Silicon Valley, which which <laughs> borrowed short and lent long, um, you've just got to manage your net, your net interest margin by. So sourcing your their... funds to match the so fixed funds. nature of their loans. That's right. Their
1: funding is long-term as well. Yeah. Not just not yeah, just yeah,
0: their the has got the deepest pr- uh, private bond market in the world, and you can you can you know you can tap into that very long-term fixed-rate uh, uh, wholesale funding to service your mo- mortgage book. Now, Kristen's got two questions in recognition, recognition of International Women's Day, March the eighth. Uh, what would it take? To get more female voices in finance podcasts, advisors, a visible presence in the finance and banking world, and what are your thoughts on how much the pink tax impacts women's financial well-being and any impacts it may have on women's ability to invest for the future? Well, what's the pink tax? The pink tax is is basically where corporates are charging more for uh, uh, hair, female hairdressing. Um, Dry cleaning clothes. Um, is that true? Taxes on is that right? on makeup. Yeah, there is. There's been a lot of studies about how I know, it's more expensive for women to to buy clothes, to get their clothes dry cleaned, to hairdressing. You know, these are. I know hairdressing
1: costs more for women. So
0: the way you offset that is obviously that some governments are moving towards you know free tampons, which is a really good gender equity <laughs> policy. Um, but, yeah, I think that, that there, there is a bit of a pink tax. I don't think it's that material in, in the scheme of things, but how would I know? Um, and in terms of visible voices, in the corporate world, there's quite a few audit committee chairs who are female. So the Paula Dwyer, Anne Brennan, Christine Holman, Jan Skinner at QBE, Jennifer Lambert at REA. But I do agree, the trading floors are terrible, Uh, The analyst calls are terrible. I mean, the majority of analyst calls I listen to, there's just not a female voice to be heard. Um, Quite often, sometimes a female CFO dealing with 10 blokey analysts. So I haven't got a solution, but I do agree with Kristen that um, it's a big problem. And uh, my wife, Paul Piccinini, she just ran for the board of the RACV uninvited. Australia's one of the biggest insurers, Australia's biggest mutual, and the, the punters elected her. She did 10 years. So I I say, look, step up and put yourself forward.
1: Aaron says, to tackle inflation, the RBA increases the cash rate, which decreases spending, but only for those with a mortgage. Wouldn't it be better to increase the super rate temporarily to tackle inflation? This would affect everyone who is paid super. happens without delay and means the money isn't just passed to the bank's bottom line, but merely delayed for the future. It will also reduce the government's future obligations for pension payments. Why isn't this ever suggested? Because... It's too hard.
0: It's mad. You can't... It's mad. Re- you can't rewrite everyone's employment contracts and enterprise agreements just like that and start taking out more or less super. It's a, the equivalent of but there fiscal are things, fill low but, but jumping into fi- your super.
1: But there are fiscal policy things that possibly could be done.
0: Well, petrol tax is a, is a classic. The oil price fell 7% overnight. It's down to $66 a barrel. Rather than petrol going to $1.60 in Australia... Because when the economy is overheating, the government should crank up the cents in the dollar uh, petrol excise and put it back up towards a dollar ninety and suck more out of the economy and pay off, reduce the budget deficit. But there's not that many areas where you can be nimble like that.
1: I wrote the other day. I wrote up a suggestion by Nick Gruen, which has, which he made like a long time ago, 20 years ago, um, the Economist, and his suggestion was there should be a separate. Independent fiscal authority that has the power to increase taxes within a certain range, uh, Just as like independent economic policy, mon-
0: independent monetary policy. So. That's
1: right, independent monetary policy, and, a, and, a, and within a certain range, independent taxation policy to act as an economic um, economic policy. You know, look, I think I, look, that's, that's I, not I, a
0: bad I, idea. I, I agree. I'm getting sick of politics producing grossly irresponsible and short-sighted fiscal management I mean Dan Andrews interest is now 10 million a day in Victoria 10 million a day and the, and the debt's going to be 160 billion I wouldn't be surprised if like with regional banks we see some contagion flowing to smaller governments you know particularly those who don't control a printing press because mm. um, you know if suddenly Victoria's interest bill you know, we get downgraded and the interest rate goes up. Well, who's going to refinance Victoria? We can't yeah. print money. Now, we've got Nimel who says, if GDP growth is less than the CPI, isn't the economy going backwards in the real term or is it a bit more nuanced than a simple comparison? Well, why is why is G- GDP growth always after CPI, Alan? That's
1: a good question. But it's always what we what we quote, what the ABS quotes and we talk about, is real GDP yeah. after inflation. Um, so uh, I, I think it... In 2022, in 2022, I actually think there's a good case for for yeah, us talking nominal, about nominal GDP. Because
0: nominal GDP growth in 2022 was 10% in Australia. Because yeah, inflation most of was 7 and growth was 3
1: Yeah, so most
0: of it was uh, prices going up. Sucked up by higher prices, not sure, real growth.
1: But that's but the, the fact that prices went up is not immaterial. No, like I, nothing. I, I, I think we should be
0: quoting both. It should be, well, nominal, you know, the economy's grown from 3 trillion
1: to 3.3 trillion or whatever it is. I mean, but you know when, when um, someone like Richard Miles talks about Defense or, you know, this thing being... These $348 being,
0: billion. Dollars. Point, no, no, he's 0.15% 15% of GDP. GDP.
1: He's talking about of nominal GDP. Yeah. It's not real GDP. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever anyone says something's a lies, percentage of GDP... Lies, and statistics.
0: Exactly. You can, you can roll up a big number, a small number, any way you like. So, uh, Ram Nish
1: says, love the podcast. Thank you, Ram Nish. Can you recommend any resources to learn more about the intricacies of superannuation? When nearing and entering retirement, for example, caps limit small business contribution on selling a business downsizer. Also, do you think common sense will prevail and the government will eventually index a proposed $3 million cap? Well,
0: one hour after you and I last sat down, Alan, they did introduce the $3 million there cap. You go. So we so were out of date straight away as we were speculating but
1: on What's that. the answer to his first question, I think, Stephen? I
0: think. My independent advice, you couldn't possibly say this out, and I think that Ramnes should become a Eureka Report paying subscribers. We know that lots of the listeners of The Money Cafe are enjoying our services in a complimentary manner, and if they would like to become more closely engaged, there is excellent advice on all those issues. Um, But I also think there's a massive shortage of financial advisors in Australia now. Post the Hain Royal Commission, tens of thousands have been drummed out of the industry. Some were cowboys, many were good. And there's a massive lack of good independent financial advice for Australians like Remnish. But Eureka Report's a good start. Now, Matt... Matt says, I love the podcast as well, and I'd love you to to discuss the better way to be exposed to data centres through Macquarie Telecom or NextDC. Now, I did have a look at this, Matt, and Macquarie Telecom shares have surged from $19 to $59 in three years, whereas NextDC, which you're right, is worth $4 billion. Their stocks come back from $14 to $10, but still doubled in four years. So, look, Scoreboard, Macquarie Telecom has been the better exposure. They do have very good entrenchment with the government uh, clients. I personally am a bit nervous about the data centres sector because at the end of the day, you're very dependent on Google, Facebook, ADA, you know, Amazon, the big giants, and there's a power imbalance when you're a little Aussie-based data centre owner. And you're up against the massive clients who are just. But they're not the only clients, players. are they? Well, not the only ones. I mean, you know, obviously, Macquarie Telecom specialises in government clients. But uh, look, there's massive growth in data. So everyone thinks, oh, you know, this is like lithium, that it's just going to be a never-ending paradise. But they're quite capital-intensive. Controlling the heat, you've got to build buildings, planning, construction costs, unions is not as easy as digging up lithium, I would argue, uh, making money in the uh, big building giant data centres.
1: Stephen says, I note IOZ... That's iShares. iShares.
0: I yeah, Stephen's given us so many acronyms. I think he's trying to get within our I, new 160-character limit. I can't make, the question, I can't make head nor tail.
1: Did you look them all I up, looked did them you?
0: Up. So Stephen says, I note that IOZ iShares and A200 Beta shares." have recently lowered their MER fees. Given VAS, Vanguard is only charging 0.1% and is a favourite for AS exposure. Do you foresee the new lowered MER fees for iShares and BetaShares who've cut to 0.06 and 0.05 respectively? Is this a bait to get people in and then the fees will rise later? So are ETFs cutting their fees to lure in clients. Is it a bait and they're switch? they jack the fees up later.
1: Is it, is it Stephen? I don't
0: think it's competition at work. Um, all those fees are low, 0.1, 0.06, 0.05. It's
1: a great way to be exposed to the market. But they're not – the uh, did you notice whether they're introductory offers that only last for six months or 12 months or something? Oh, it's probably like a honeymoon home loan. I
0: didn't, uh, I didn't look at that. But uh, at the end of the day, e- ETF investing is what has smashed everyone from platinum to Credit Suisse. It's just been the. Uh, it just they just outperformed the stock pickers and um, and uh, I think they're all pretty good value.
1: There you are. Well that's it. We're done. And Let's uh, get back can I'm looking forward just... to
0: your graphs tonight, Alan. You've got so many to choose from. I know. I just Credit wanted squeeze. to um,
1: I just wanna welcome Tristan Rayner, who is our who is my uh, sub editor based in Berlin. For the weekend briefing on Eureka Report, which Tristan deals with uh, and publishes so from for years Berlin, For I've been thinking and that you and
0: Greg get up at three in the
1: morning to. to well, get I this do. I get up at five. You get up at five
0: every Saturday.
1: I you do, but but legend. Tristan is there beavering away on his Friday night. Friday night in Berlin before the music <laughs> starts. And, uh, and uh, well, I'm going I'm to move to
0: Berlin as well. I reckon that'd be a great, you know. Subbing for Australian overnight players from Berlin. I mean, what a lifestyle. It would be bad. There you go. So, welcome, Tristan. And we always should thank Greg.
1: We should. Thank Greg you,
0: Greg. Greg our wonderful producer. Makes us and all thanks, sound sensible.
1: And thanks to you for listening to today's episode of Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with James Thompson. Send in your question to the Money Cafe at eureka Until next week, I'm Alan Cola, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm Stephen Mayne, etc. We'll see you in a fortnight.